Well, do please turn back with me to John's Gospel for a second look at this beautiful chapter. John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. Once again, page 888 in the Visitor's Bibles. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that is high noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you lot say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You lot worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who's called the Christ. 
When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I am the one speaking to you. Well, let's bow our heads. Loving Heavenly Father, help us, we pray. Despite all the the distractions, all the things pressing in on our hearts and minds, help us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit to rejoice now together in the voice of our bridegroom. For we ask it in his name. Amen. By these ancient symbols of conjugal love, you take each other to have and to hold from this day forwards, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, till death do you part. And for as much as you have covenanted together in holy matrimony and have declared the same before God and these witnesses, I pronounce you to be husband and wife in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are some amens that really change things, and surely that is one of them. Once it's said, there is no undoing it. You leave church and you might feel like the same person, but something fundamental has changed. So what does it mean to say, I do, to Jesus Christ? Well, last week we took our first look at this passage, and John introduced us to his portrait, his shocking portrait, of the bride of Christ. Jesus comes to be sitting by a well, that ancient Bible equivalent of a dating app, with what is surely one of the saddest, thirstiest women in all of Samaria, discarded, disgraced, disinterested, desperate, and dirty. And yet it turns out that Jesus knows the darkest corners of her heart better than she knows them herself. And even so, he treats her with a kindness and dignity and patient respect that nobody else ever has. And in verse 10, as he opens up the conversation, he says the words which unlock John's purpose in giving so much space to this one conversation with this one woman. Verse 10, if only you knew, you poor thrown away woman, if only you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink. If only you knew, you'd have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's as if Jesus is begging her to ask, isn't it? We should all be asking by now, if we're awake. What is the gift of God? Who are you, this extraordinary, gracious man, bothering to speak to someone like me? In other words, what changes when we say, I do, to Jesus Christ? What exactly is God giving us in him On the one hand, we read John chapter 4, and immediately we want the gift, don't we? Because it's presented by Jesus in such beautifully attractive terms. We've been shown through this woman, we saw last week, our desperate need 
It's such a powerful picture Jesus uses to help us feel it. Just take a few deep breaths. Feel the tip of your tongue drying out and the back of your throat. Don't swallow yet. How long can you hold it, that feeling? Think yourself into the heat of noonday in Palestine. Feel the headache, feel the weight of that water jar that you've struggled with day after day down the same dusty old track. Real thirst is unbearable, isn't it? Unbearable need. And so to this woman, with an unquenchable burden in her soul, Jesus promises rivers of living water, fresh and cool and life-giving, welling up inside her forever. It is such a powerful picture, isn't it? It sounds lovely, but what exactly does it mean? I suspect we read this and we have all sorts of vague impressions of what Jesus is offering. Clearly, fairly high up the list, he's promising satisfaction. There's a need that's eating away at this woman and somehow Jesus will meet it. And in a very John's gospel kind of way, she understands that need on a physical level. Give me this water, verse 15, so that I won't be thirsty anymore or keep having to come here to draw water in the heat. Jesus, though, is clearly talking about a much deeper need and a much deeper sort of satisfaction. At some level, we know that must involve a promise of cleansing. Firstly, because that's the obvious need that Jesus exposes. Nothing else can be put right in her life until she finds forgiveness. And we've seen that watery cleansing idea being played with now for three chapters in this book. But is that enough to satisfy us? Everything's forgiven. You've got a fresh start. So back to bloke number six now. But marry this one properly and don't do it again. Then most of the evangelical sermons I've heard on this major on the eternal life that Jesus talks about in verse 14. And rightly so. What is Christianity without eternal life at its heart? We want to narrow this rich passage down to a big idea, and so that's the one we often land on. But I wonder if perhaps we read this chapter and somewhere inside us, we feel a little bit let down. Forgiveness and eternal life, those are deeply beautiful gifts. But if that's it, those things on their own, a fresh start and eternal life, well, Sometimes even that can sound a bit cold and forensic, can't it? Like there's a bit of a gap between that beautiful, powerful picture of an end to our thirsting and the actual Christian lives that we're living through now. Do we feel right now as if there's a fountain flowing in our souls? Maybe then the gift is none of those things. I suspect... Most of us at least have a vague impression that it must be something to do with the Holy Spirit. That's also a promise we've seen already in this book. Jesus is the one who comes to baptize us, another watery picture. 
with the Holy Spirit. He seems very interested in spiritual worship as this conversation comes to a close. And in a few chapters' time, he'll make the link explicit. Listen to this from chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit. There we go then. The gift, this water, must mean the Spirit. Or at least worship in the Spirit. Maybe there's the thing that will make us satisfied, truly satisfied. But what does that mean? Who or what is the Spirit? What's he like? Somehow the way we talk about him often seems quite abstract and impersonal, doesn't it? And so we worry secretly, I think, whether we might be missing something, some sort of satisfaction that other Christians have and enjoy. Now, clearly, there are loads of good things, loads of good stuff that Jesus promises here to his bride. There are so many gifts. But I think if we can pin it down in slightly more concrete terms, then it ought to tie this passage together in a way that is far more rich and human and satisfying. What exactly has Jesus come to give his bride? And what does he want for her? Well, let's start with the gift itself, because I hope when we look a little more deeply, we'll see that the gift is none of those things, but it means all of those things. Because what Jesus gives us isn't abstract stuff. The gift is Jesus himself. Not just benefits, but a bridegroom. What is it this woman has been searching for all these years? Surely it is one husband who can provide for her. And although all our attention might be caught by the grabby imagery, when you look closely, you see that the real focus in these verses is all on who Jesus is. If only you knew the gift of God and who it is, who has come from heaven to seek and save his bride. All the stress in this passage is on who it is she's speaking to, what resources he has when he looks like nothing to her and his hands are empty and she's the one sitting there with the water jar. We get it again, don't we, in verse 26. I am the one speaking to you. I am the Messiah and I suspect I am much, much more. It's the first great I am saying of the book. I am the divine bridegroom of Israel. Yes, someone greater than Jacob is here, someone who can provide for your deepest needs once and for all. Alistair Roberts, the theologian, points out the way even some of the minor details make that point. She's had six men. Now here comes the seventh, the one who brings fullness. Verse 6, it's the sixth hour. 
And once again, Jesus sets the clock running towards the seventh, the hour that's coming, verse 21, the hour when he will provide for his bride upon the cross. This book will head towards its climax in chapter 19, verse 14, with a phrase that repeats word for word the end of verse 6. It was about the sixth hour. And then Jesus will cry out on the cross, discarded, disgraced, dirty. And what will he cry? I thirst. He's traded places with her, hasn't he? It's as if John is giving us a little subtle trailer of how it is that this bridegroom will provide for his bride. So do you see, there's only one gift, not some abstract force or spirit or benefit, but a person who will provide for you with the deepest kind of love and commitment that you could ever imagine. The very thing this thrown away woman must have ached for in her heart I think John Calvin is probably right on verse 10. The and there is meant to tie the two halves of the sentence together. The gift is the one speaking to her right now, a true husband. And you don't need to go anywhere to any temple. I have come right here to find you. Now she looks at him in that moment and she thinks, what on earth? Can this man offer me yet another man? But she doesn't know, does she, what John has already told us. This man is the son of heaven, the one who possesses the Holy Spirit without measure. The one, chapter three, with every treasure of grace in his hands and the only one who can pour his Holy Spirit out on us like living water. And that, I think, is where all those other candidates, those other gifts, get tied together. They don't come to us in isolation as abstract things. No, Jesus comes to us through his own Holy Spirit with every other blessing in his hands. The gift is Jesus. And in him, we get the world. He gives himself to us so that he can dwell with us forever through his spirit. Not some abstract spirit, not some bland force without a personality. No, he's the spirit of Christ. Christ in us. Jesus doesn't just show us who God the Father is and what he's like. Jesus came to show us who God the Trinity is. The Spirit is just like Jesus, Jesus with us. And I think the way that becomes clear is looking carefully at how this living water language is used through the Bible. It's such a strange phrase, isn't it? Living water. And if you read your Old Testament, you find it popping up again and again. On one level, Living water is simply water that moves. That's all it means. Fresh, running water, rather than the stagnant stuff that sits in a cistern or a well. And at first, verse 15, that's all she understands. Give me that fresh water 
so I'll never be thirsty or have to come here again. But it doesn't take much digging in your Old Testaments to find a bit more significance to that running water. You see, the law said it had to be living water, flowing water, if you were going to use it to wash away your impurities, to cleanse a bride, for example, before a wedding. And surely that is what this particular bride needs above all, if she's going to stand before God anywhere. In fact, that cleansing from sin was Israel's greatest need. And so again and again, the prophets of the Old Testament promised that it would come. God would pour out living water on his people to wash them clean again. And the place that water flows from in many of the Old Testament pictures was the temple in Jerusalem. That was where God's cleansing, his forgiveness is done. We looked last week, didn't we, at that beautiful picture in Ezekiel 47, a life-giving, healing river pouring out of the temple. But how does Jesus say we get that water? Well, we get it now from him. He is the true temple, the place where you meet really and truly with the living God. You receive that living water of his spirit, he tells us in chapter 7, by drinking from Jesus himself. He's his spirit and he's his to give. Drink from the spirit and you drink from Christ. We see the same thing in Jeremiah chapter two. The water isn't some abstract gift, some impersonal spirit. No, God himself is the spring of living water who his people have forsaken they stopped drinking from God, the personal life-giving God. And instead, they're trying to dig their own cracked, leaking cisterns. And human beings aren't made for that, are we? Think of Adam. He's a little clay model of a man when he's made until God breathed life into him. We are dried out men of mud, dehydrated, dying souls. And without the one we're made for, we turn to dust. And so Jesus says, come to me, receive me through my Holy Spirit, and you will get everything God's temple ever promised. I am the true source of that life-giving, sin-cleansing, soul-sustaining water. Drink this water from this physical well, and poor woman, you will be back here again tomorrow, and then the next day, and then again and again and again, lugging the same water in the same old pot through the same heat, day after day, struggling with the same load and the same shame and the same thirst without rest. Even if you went all the way to the temple in Jerusalem, the real deal, none of that would change. You're right. The well is deep. But I draw from a well that is deeper still. 
and filled without measure. Only I can draw from those deep, eternal, never-depleting resources. Only I can give you everything you need once and for all. So he is the one bridegroom, do you see, who can be everything she needs him to be, provide for every last need of her soul, and he is hers to enjoy and to worship for eternity. Not just eternal life, it's life forever in his joy, where all sorrow is banished forever. Anyone, he's saying, who experiences the living Jesus will never again need to thirst for God's love. Never again have to carry the loneliness and the shame. Never again need to search desperately for some new blessing, some new provider, some new source of satisfaction. Because the Lord and giver of life himself wells up inside you forever. Now here's the payoff. Here's why I think it helps to think clearly about the gift and not leave that vague. If the gift isn't simply the benefits, but the bridegroom himself, Jesus clothed in his Holy Spirit, well, that means that right now, we don't necessarily expect to feel every blessing of his gospel all the time. Jesus is not saying here that you will never again feel spiritually dry. I think that is really important. There will be times when we long for more of him, times we don't feel it so much. Just like in any good marriage, there are times when a husband and a wife long for more intimacy, more of each other. John Calvin is extremely pastorally wise here. The point he says isn't that on day one as a Christian, we get all the satisfaction that's ever on offer. Don't worry if that is not your experience. The point is that once we've met Jesus Christ, we never need to look for that forgiveness or cleansing or worship or eternal life anywhere else. We'll never need to worry about where to find water. There's no second blessing we need to search for, just an infinite amount of the first, always and only and forever in him. A well of grace that is infinitely deep, flowing like John told us right at the start, out of his fullness. And that grace can be ours Whoever we are, and however far away from him we started, and however slowly we're learning to be satisfied in him, not just benefits, but a bridegroom. There's the gift. So what is the goal? When Jesus looks full of pity and love at this woman, what is it he wants for her? I wonder if for us... Verses 19 to 26 are actually some of the most surprising words in this passage because the need that Jesus sees in her heart is one that is just so far from our minds. 
He hasn't come to fix her marriage. He hasn't come to put running water in her kitchen or even to give her a fresh start. No, he's come to seek her out and make her a worshiper, to make her holy and make her his. In other words, what Jesus wants for us is not just mercy, but a marriage. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If the real gift is the bridegroom, it makes sense that the real goal will be a relationship. Once we see that, I think the way this conversation develops suddenly becomes far more natural. I wonder if it struck you as odd the way she jumps straight from having her sin exposed to asking this question about the temple in verse 20. Almost all of the modern commentators see that as a massive diversionary tactic. She hates that Jesus gets so personal, and so she throws up some obscure theological debating point to change the subject. And it does rather read like that at first, because who of us would look at a woman like this and say her great need is to learn more about true worship? Nobody today, because we don't think that really matters. But what if she does? What if Jesus does? What if this woman, with all her sinful past and her spiritual ignorance, what if actually she is the best person to tell us what her real immediate thirst is? Shouldn't we give her a voice? Notice that Jesus does. Nobody else in all the Gospels has ever managed to pull the wool over Jesus' eyes, and yet he follows the conversation right where she tries to take it. And the reason for that, I think, could not be more simple. It's not a distraction. It's not a diversion. The answer to that question of hers in verse 20 is the thing she needs most in all the world. Here is a man who clearly speaks for God, a man who has seen right through her heart, exposed her desperate need for God's forgiveness. What could possibly be less abstract and more natural than to ask, how could someone like me ever come close to God? How could I worship him with every possible barrier keeping me away? Where would I even go? I don't think there's anything more real that a human being could ever ask. Herman Ridderboss says this, and I'm sure he's right. Far from being a diversion, that question, that ancient theological divide between Jews and Samaritans had never been more personally important to her than it became in this moment. It's the difference between life and death, drink or drought. And wonderfully, Jesus gives her everything she's looking for in his answer. There is a way that even you, a woman who would never be welcomed at that temple in Jerusalem, can enjoy everything it ever promised 
And it's through the same gift that I've been offering you all along. Come to me, the living temple. Now, the point here is not how we often, I think, read it, that Jesus has come now, and so we can worship God any old way. The point is the opposite of that, isn't it? Now that I've come, there is no true relationship, no true worship that doesn't go through me. Yes, salvation is from the Jews. You can't worship your own God in your own way and your own place. Only the real God, as he truly is, the one I reveal, God is spirit. Whereas we are flesh and blood, we're material beings, which makes him unknowable to us, unapproachable, unless he makes himself known. But now he has. Always and forever now, God will be found dwelling with man in the risen body of Jesus Christ, the body his spirit unites us to as we worship wherever we are. Because his spirit is in us, we can worship in the temple of a spiritual God. How amazing is that? But the real God is also truth. He is truth itself, which means if we're going to approach him, it has to be honest. It's a must, verse 24. You must leave behind all your covering up. You must leave behind all that defensiveness over your sin. The whole life you've lived up till now has to be left by the well, just like she leaves her water jar behind in verse 28. And instead, you have to drink from me and I will wash you clean and dwell within you through my spirit so that you can know and worship God in honesty and beauty and sincerity. That is what I want for you. That is why I loved you right to the very last. So then what happens when you say I do to Jesus Christ? Surely there is no question that puts more meaning into our lives than that one. Well, what Jesus wants for his bride is far, far more than charity. Yes, he is full of mercy to this woman. Whoever really does mean whoever. But a fresh start on its own is not enough for her, is it? When his hour came, Jesus gave his very self for the sake of his bride to make you spotless and pure and provide everything you would ever need for the rest of eternity so that you could be a lover and a worshiper of the God you were made for. The greatest need that we never knew we had. But the well is deep. So will we drink from it? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot rest until we find our rest in you. We cannot cleanse our sin or quench our thirst or sustain our souls from our own resources. 
we cannot worship or enjoy the one our tongues were made to sing for unless you bring us to him. And so we praise you who bore our thirst and shame and guilt in love for a blood-bought bride. We praise you for the infinite depths of grace and truth and love that are ours to enjoy forever in you alone. And so help us, we pray, to drink from nowhere else. Amen.